This episode of That Song From That Movie is coming up after this. My name is Paige, and I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can turn into nightmares. Join me as I tell you haunting and horrific reveries about missing people and senseless murders. I also interview survivors and people seeking justice for themselves or a loved one. New episodes come out every Monday morning, and sometimes you'll get bonus episodes on Thursdays. Wherever you're listening to this current podcast right now, you can find Reverie True Crime. Okay, so we did a Disney Pixar film, then we followed that up with a DreamWorks film. Two parts on that one, actually. So obviously, the logical step next is Reservoir Dogs on today's That Song From That Movie. Here I come to save the day. My God, that was really lame. Well, it was Mighty Mouse is on his way. I don't understand how that fits into the other ones, but yeah. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, The Journey Through the Very Best and Worst of Movie Songs. I am your, will never spell Reservoir correctly the first time, host Dietrich. And we're also joined as always by, we're shutting his butt down, Alex. <laughs> so what, what is the reason behind uh, it being shut down? Keep that butt under wraps. What has my, what has my butt done this time? Uh, Christian Guru Murphy told me to say it. <laughs> Fair enough. And we're also joined by the man who is trying to say with this cartoon man is that violence is everywhere in our society, man. You know, it's like even in our breakfast cereals, man. Ben. Is it in breakfast cereals? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of my most recent cereals and seeing if I've had either I've had a burst or an urge for violence or there's been a particularly cartoon character on the front of it that's been enacting violence. Don't think so. Although I do eat Weetabix, which doesn't have... <laughs> Uh, an anthropomorphized animal on the cover. Not yet. Don't know what Tony the Tiger's been up to recently. What have we been watching this week? Have you watched any films? Films. Before you start talking about Snackmaster or whatever it's called. I watched one film. I watched one film. <gasps> yeah. I think it might be the same as Alex's. Yeah. It's a little uh, little film called uh, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> That's good. It's a start. It's a very, it's a very good start. I do have a non... Well, it's not a film, but I do have a non-Snackmasters related thing I was going to bring up. Have you both watched Chernobyl? Yes, I have watched Chernobyl. I, I, I have never been more sad. Okay. What about you, Alex? I've not seen it, no. It's been recommended about a billion times, but I think it's one of those things where people recommend it so often that I just refuse to watch it now. <laughs> like... So, my question is then to you, Ben. Okay. I've watched the first episode, yep. and it was... It was horrifying. It, like, yes, it is hor- absolutely it's horrifying. It's so, so scary. But I feel like there's nowhere else for the show to go over the next five episodes. Yep. So is there any point in me even watching them? I'd say, like, episode three, you can finish there. The first, it, it definitely goes downhill. <laughs> it's very quickly goes downhill because, yes, much of the extremely, well, I say interesting but horrifying parts are in the first, like, two, two or three episodes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that first episode, to me, was scarier than most horror films I've ever 100%, watched. 100%, yep. Because you're just watching people almost like dying in live time and they don't know it. Yeah, slowly walking into death. It's, oh God, it's, it's awful. 
compelling but awful <laughs> how now how would it be if stuck in the middle of you was playing over the top of that stuck in the middle with a nuclear explosion happening yeah doesn't doesn't really fit don't remember jerry rafferty singing that version <laughs> alex anything you want to talk about well i've only watched tv and i watched i finally found out who h was um, and i'm sure you did d also by watching gogglebox um in line of duty <laughs> Um, I've not watched the Gogglebox post that because it was last night. So you don't know who H is? Uh, no. Well, other, other than the guy from Steps, but no. The guy from Steps. <laughs> yeah, it was him. I hear it was a big disappointment. I actually don't. Well, I don't agree with the internet on that, but that's a story for another day. It's, this, it's, it, it would take me too long to explain why. Good. Agree. Good. Should either me and Ben ever watch Line of Duty, then we'll have the conversation on the podcast. Yeah. And I will not. And I will not. We've got to watch six seasons as well before we can do this. Oh, God, yeah, that's, that, that puts me off any any TV show. Okay, so today's episode is the first of many Quentin Tarantino classics, Reservoir Dogs. So to find out what's happening in the world when the movie came out, over to you, Ben. Lovely stuff. Okay, so I'm taking you back to January 1993, which was the UK release date. I know the film came out in 1992. Don't at me. That's out of the way. Crack knuckles. <laughs> Bill Clinton. The man who wears underwear to keep his ankles warm is inaugurated as the 42nd president of the United States of America. He was, I think he was on our news the other week, wasn't he? He was. Because he (laughs) entered, yeah, yeah, he entered the news for entering something else. Anyway, um, (laughs) British bookmakers cut their odds on the monarchy being abolished by the year 2000 from 100 to 1 to 50 to 1 in the wake of Prince Charles and Lady Diana announcing their plans to divorce. Don't think they succeeded because she's still going strong people what an absolutely shocking turn of events nothing like that would ever rock the royal family again nope nothing (laughs) (laughs) oprah side glance and one of the most iconic movies of the postmodern era is released to critical and commercial acclaim the oscar nominated under siege directed by andrew (laughs) davis starring black belt cop by day actor musician and self-proclaimed womanizer by the rest of the day, Steven Seagal. Wait, wait, right. Go, what was it? What was it Oscar nominated for? It, it, it was nominated for two Oscars. I think like sound editing and, and uh, you know best picture or something like that. I don't know. And how many Oscars was Reservoir Dogs nominated for? Zero. <laughs> I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? Why? <laughs> why are we doing this? I don't know if Steven Seagal performed a song for Under Siege, but he should have done. I mean, there is a reason why there's an Under Siege two and there's not a Reservoir Dogs two. Yeah. I mean that that says it all. Really. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> You know what? I'm not even lying by the uh, critical and commercial acclaim. Apparently, it, it says on its Wikipedia page, Under Siege was commercially and critically successful. And does it send a link? Like, is it a little, a little citation <laughs> to stevensegal.com? Yeah, yeah. yeah, probably. Is this indie, is, it, is it sci-fi wire again? Are they getting involved? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and yeah, Reservoir Dogs came out. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs is a directorial debut by household name now. Quentin Tarantino, in which six criminals, each with their own coloured pseudonyms, navigate the fallout of a heist gone wrong, knowing that there's a traitor in their midst. Um, I know we've all seen the film because you've just said, but what are our general thoughts on this one before we do a deep dive? Um, so I really like the film that I thought this was. Okay. So like the version of this film that is in my memory rather than the film I watched like two days ago. Not that I didn't like it, but I think I thought it was something other than it was. 
<laughs> in a lot of ways. I think, like, obviously I, I remembered the general basic plot points of the film, but I, I felt like it the film that was in my mind was better told than this one. It felt very messy at points. And I think okay. I was I always thought it was like it was the standard, like if anyone asks like what's the best Quentin Tarantino film, the logical answer is Pulp Fiction, but the hipster option was always Reservoir Dogs. But actually I would now reverse that and say that I agree that Pulp Fiction is better than this film. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Dietrich. So I've always said that this was my personal favourite Tarantino movie. So I was actually a little apprehensive rewatching it because, I mean, the first time I watched it and the last time I watched it was maybe like 16, 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've always since then said, oh yeah, but the best Tarantino movie is Reservoir Dogs. Even after seeing newer ones going, ah, it's that one, it's that one, but never going back to it. So yeah, I was apprehensive going into it and five minutes into it, I was going, oh yeah, I love this movie, it's great. <laughs> five minutes? Wow. Do still having breakfast. <laughs> Just talking about Madonna. Yeah, exactly. And the, like the smash cuts, like them in the back seat, mm-hmm. like with the blood everywhere. I was like, yeah, yeah, this this is the film. So yeah, I've, I've had the opposite journey of Alex. That is quite interesting. Alex, what kind of film did you think it was? So you see, like, I felt like it was more of like a one set play where it all took place within the warehouse. Yeah, I kind of vaguely remembered that there was like snapshots of what happened before, but I actually think the idea of it being after the ro- failed robbery or successful robbery, I suppose, if you consider the fact they get the diamonds. But the idea of a film that sets place afterwards and everything unfolds within that warehouse alone is a better idea. And in fact, like it obviously does do that in that Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi and uh, Nice Guy Eddie leave for a while. <laughs> I like so, how they've yeah, got their, their actual actors. <laughs> nice Guy Eddie. He's just going to be known as Nice Oscar Guy Oscar nominated Nice Guy Eddie. <laughs> wasn't nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> not, not for this film. <laughs> yeah, Nice Guy Eddie never has been, unfortunately. Is Nice Guy Eddie Sean Penn's brother? Is that him? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. He's, de- he's dead now. The guy in the truck. The guy in the one. The, the one suit. in the tracksuit. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's dead. Nice he's Sean Eddie. Penn's brother. I forget his right. name. Well, they like leave, don't they? And like the action does stay there. But I felt like that should have been the full film. I don't think you need the flashback stuff. And I, and I think like watching it, that, that really jarred with me. I felt it was unnecessary. I felt it was kind of like he was trying to introduce like unchronological narrative, I suppose, uh, unlinear narrative for the sake of it. And I felt like actually what he'd done really well at the beginning, which is have the before, then you miss out the part which you would usually think is the most interesting and then cut to the end. And that was really the cleverest part of the film. And he should have really committed to that more. That's interesting. I think that is what I had in my head, that it did do that. But actually, a large portion of the film was the cutbacks, especially the part with Tim Roth. And that part goes on for too long. And actually, I just felt like I wasn't interested in his backstory. And I actually think the reveal as well would have been stronger at the end if we didn't, maybe if we didn't know he was a cop. (laughs) I don't know. I just just think it could have been different. It's not that I didn't enjoy it. I think like the film is still really like watchable, and it is tense and it is horrific in equal measure. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it still is really good. And I was still, if if I was ranking Quentin Tarantino films, it would be near the top definitely. But I just don't know. I just think I thought it was the best one, and then rewatching it a few months after I rewatched Pulp Fiction, I don't think it's on the same level. That's interesting. It's always a nicer place in Alex's head. Yeah, <laughs> I'd put this as second in the Tarantinography. I'm going with it. I think Inglorious Bastards is the best. Um, hmm. Interesting choice. And then this one. I, I watched it about two months ago. I think it's probably the best directorial debut of all time. Not controversial, really. Awesome Wells, eat your heart out. 
And it's quite interesting what you were saying about the non-linear narrative, because that's kind of a strong feature of his, a lot of his films, maybe all of his films. And I guess the three tenets that kind of make Quentin Tarantino throughout his filmography are kind of here, I guess, in there. Still gestating like, the brand new for him, and I guess the non-linear narrative. There's the <laughs> the poetic violence, just a lot of violence, however you want to frame that. Um, and his kind of maybe overindulging screenplays sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. All but the I think they work really, they work, yeah. But like, say, like the opening of Inglorious Bastards is amazing. I, I mean, and it is just kind of, you know, a dialogue between two people. And they sort of de said the opening when they're kind of just discussing about tipping and Madonna. It feels very natural. I know some people, D, your favorite critic of all time, criticized the film because of that. He said he doesn't do enough in the screenplay to kind of develop the characters. But I think that this film is, it was a cult classic. It was and is still an independent film. It was so influential because of the names like Mr. Pink, Mr. Blonde, that they kind of had like a bit of um, anonymity behind them and a bit of sort of mystery. And the kind of all cool, you know, the suits and the skinny ties um, is a common Halloween and I don't want to put too much effort in attire. <laughs> it's either Men in Black or I'm a Reservoir Dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or Clockwork Orange, you know, if, you want, if you're interested in doing a bit of mascara over one eye. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you're saying though, because I actually think that the character development, it needed to be more or less than what it is. I think if you want to go for the full, like, oh, they're a mysterious characters and we don't really know too much about them, then don't show the backstories as to how they got involved in the caper. I think it's yeah, unnecessary. Yeah. I just don't think that part's needed. And I actually think that would make the lack of character that's shown actually better because I think you, you'd fill in the gaps more yourself. I think what happens is you're doing that at the beginning and then it's like, no, this is what happens. Like, oh, all right, well, mm-hmm. I'm not that bothered about that part because we already know what happens afterwards. It's kind of I don't care what happened before. And that's I think that that's I think that's maybe what was the main thing that bugged me about it. But like I say, I still really enjoyed watching it. Yeah. Well, it's like those kind of things. When it, when something's given as a classic or given as a very good film, it makes more sense to point out the potential yeah, gripes with it rather definitely. than just going yeah. into all the sort of the good things because we've heard them all before. Exactly. So yeah. I'll give you that time, Alex. D, don't cut <laughs> it out. You know, I know we usually do, but don't. <laughs> okay. I mean, because, yeah, it, this is considered quite openly as a landmark point in cinema especially for the violence in like a mainstream sense. The film was, I think it had a budget of about just over a million, which is quite a lot for an open, for someone's first directorial debut. And a pretty good cast for that. I think um, Tarantino got a lot of help at Sundance Film Festival in the sort of director rooms with like from like Tony Scott. And I think it put him in touch with Harvey Keitel, who really liked it and he kind of pushed it and produced it and got some more involvement. Yeah. But yeah, just the use of violence because it is over the top. That's it, like, in the back of... I mean, Tim Roth, so much blood. How he's even still alive, I have no idea. I mean, and he get, I guess he goes further into this in, like, later films in, like, Kill Bill. It's just ridiculous. The end of Django. The end of Django, oh, yeah. <laughs> God, I forgot about that. Yeah, the end of Django. Some things in... Quite a few parts in Pulp Fiction. But people seem to embrace it. And as much as some people at the time still found it quite squeamish, which I've never really thought about with this film, but it's often, Reservoir Dogs is often compared to sort of the change in cinema in the 60s with like Martin Scorsese, Sam Peckinpah, John Cassavetes, and the change in violence in like, you know, like films like Straw Dogs or Deliverance and how like violence started to make its way into mainstream movies from the sort of the night, you know, the, the films that you think about in like the 40s and 50s, you know, the, like the Frank Capra films that are very sort of clean, high-waisted, very smart. No one seems to have a scuff on them. 
And I think this is starting to be a change in the ninth as well, which he emphasized in Pulp Fiction, which I, I don't know, would you say is considered his best film by most people? I, yeah. I would think that, that most people would rank it higher than this. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't enjoy it as much. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't think I've seen it since I was about 19, to be honest. But I remember watching it a lot as a teen, probably because I was like, yeah, well, this is kind of an onslaught of my senses. And I personally think the cutting of how he does it is helps with the pacing. I think if it was just in the warehouse, I think it might struggle in parts. But hey, that's me. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. No, I can see I can see that. I can see that argument as well. But yeah, the film won no awards. Not often we're talking about films like that. Uh, and obviously the, the song we're going to, on to talk about won none because it's adapted. It was screened at Cannes, but out of competition. And his films are basically fodder for like film clubs, film schools. They just love Tarantino films because he admits himself he is the greatest or one of the greatest thieves out there. Like he doesn't homage. He says like openly, I'm not homaging old films. I'm taking them and kind of making his own thing. You know, he just loves a sort of a, almost like a geography teacher. He loves that Pritt stick. A collage. <laughs> yeah, basically. Because yeah. he has an almost encyclopedic knowledge of film. And music, which we'll go into. And he takes moments from his favourite films and just splices them into his own. Like There's just so many tributes in a lot of his films, and Kill Bill's probably got the most. He says he's not honouring in the sense of homaging, he's just stealing and admits it. Which, is that okay? Should he deserve the credit, I guess, if he's just taking all his ideas from something else? Or is that just how things are now? There is no original idea, which he says. I mean, we're a podcast that talks about other people's work, so... Yeah. <laughs> postmodernism at its finest. Yeah, and isn't any book, for instance, just a rearranging of the dictionary? Whoa, 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 whoa. I think they said the Bible. <laughs> no, the Bible. What, what, what is the first story, Alex? The first story? Like written, the written nar- like novel, like written right. narrative, like fiction. Any no, idea? No, no idea. Terrible, honestly. Back to you, D. Oh, no, it's me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Uh, one of the ways Tarantino loves to honour his films and the films of the past is also through his music. He has a room in his house, apparently, which is just dedicated to his vinyl collections and says that he often writes his films in that room and he plays songs that he thinks will fit the mood. And apparently he says that he often watches other people's films or his own and says that he could write like a soundtrack for just a character and has often done that. So he will just write like a personal soundtrack or make a personal soundtrack rather for a particular character just for fun. Don't know if it sounds like my perfect Sunday, but <laughs> go for it, Quentin. I think he probably has some of the greatest uses of soundtracks out there, especially compilation soundtracks. I don't know what you guys think. It's got to be up there, surely. Like, I can't think of any of us off the top of my head. They're that prolific constantly over many, many films. No, I guess when you think of modern ones, you think like Guardians of the Galaxy has done very well. And then after that, I'm trying to think like Almost Famous does quite well. But most of them are kind of one artist, like when you think of like... Uh, the Graduate, which we've discussed before. Yeah. Um, Phil Collins on Tarzan. <laughs> how can we not? How can we not mention it, Alex? I'm sorry. So yeah, I guess the first example of this, and I guess the first example of the use of music in a Tarantino film is Little Green Bag by the George Baker Selection, which plays over the movie's intro as the men in suits just kind of walk down the road, and we kind of introduce them one by one with the little title cards. We're not really discussing this song for this podcast, but I don't know what you guys think of that, because it's quite an iconic just scene. Very brief, very quick, but still, I think, quite famous. Yeah, I think it's actually probably more famous almost than the other scene. 
I think that kind of okay. them walking in a line with the music playing. But people probably don't know the song, but they probably recognise that initial yeah. sort of like intro to it. So I think that that is possibly more iconic. I mean, the other scene that we're going to talk about later is is much more shocking <laughs> and memorable when <laughs> yes. you watch yeah. the film, actually watch the film. But I think there's probably a lot of people out there that know the film that haven't seen it, and so they know it from that bit yeah. and that music. Yeah. Because yeah. that music has been parodied in so many things, hasn't it? With like people walking in a line, it's 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 been done like thousands of times. So I think people will really recognise that over the other scene, maybe. Yeah, the DVD that I watched this on is just a silhouette of that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Doesn't need anything else because no. it's so iconic. One second, D. You watched a DVD. Yeah, I watched a DVD because it, it wasn't on any streaming service, Gosh. so I, I had to watch it on a DVD, and it had a sort of weird introduction by tarantino at the beginning explaining the film yeah which i was about to watch so thankfully i'd seen it before so it wasn't ruined that is weird <laughs> don't know why they've done that so the part where it's revealed that mr orange is the rat <laughs> it literally talks about mr orange first as well <laughs> oh god <laughs> i mean yeah he he openly says often that he i mean do you mr orange he doesn't want he wants to make a film in which it's just all villains in a way because um, I think Mr. Orange, you're supposed to kind of see as the good guy, I guess, because he's the cop, but he's not. He shoots that woman kind of quite blank. Yeah, he's not likeable, is he? <laughs> he's not really, no. He's um, very whiny. And, uh, and Tim Roth really overacts the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he's being asked. The bit in the in the boot, he is, uh, that is a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Roth. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that guy from Police Academy, isn't it? It kind of gets to <laughs> yeah. that level. But um, but yeah, I mean that song it did quite well when it came out in the seventies. Little Green Bag and got to number sixty in the US, but is just known now for being part of Pulp Fiction. Uh, part of Pulp Fiction. Clearly, I'm wrong. It's known <laughs> as part, being part of Reservoir Dogs, and I think it's just because he blends them so well into the film. Today's episode is brought to you by Bruce and is for our North American listeners. Bruce is an electric toothbrush that will change the way you think about brushing your teeth. With powerful sonic technology and ultra-gentle bristles, the Bruce redefines what it means to have super clean teeth. It's like the feeling you get when you leave the dentist, a fresh, whole mouth clean every single day. Our listeners can get 15% off their total purchase with the code POD15. Follow the link in the show notes and enter the code POD15 for your exclusive discount and upgrade your oral care routine. So yes, the main song that we're discussing today is the song Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel. Familiar with them? Oh, when I did the Louise Redknapp version. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I literally wrote down, Louise Redknapp, Alex will mention it. <laughs> Am I that predictable? <laughs> yes, you really are, Alex. You really are. We, no, we do need to talk about that music video. No, we don't. No, we don't. But, no, but we, we should don't. talk about the movie version oh. first because it's, it's like a parody of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. But yes, I am aware of Steelers Wheel Pen. <laughs> I think uh, they're a Scottish band, aren't they? I yes, think. yes. It's Jerry Rafferty. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Baker Street. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Baker Street. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. You listen to his voice now afterwards, you can hear it. But yeah, the song is a diegetic piece, meaning it exists within the film, not just for us as the viewer, and appears why Michael Madsen, who's playing Mr. Blonde, tortures a police officer while listening to the song on the radio. Probably one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. So, guys, just the song, not Louise Redknapp, just the song first. Go. All your notes were on Louise Redknapp, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Alex staring at a page, like three pages of no solid notes. I'll let you go first, Steve. <laughs> 
I, I love the way it's used in the film, but I guess we're not talking about that yet. Yeah, go on, Deke. You can talk about that. Allow Alex to sort of Google what this, <laughs> what the non-Louise Redknapp version sounds like. <laughs> yeah, so like, it's, I, I love the way it's used in the film. Like, it's it's quite a sort of laid-back song, even though it's being used at the same time. It's almost well, essentially it juxtaposes mm-hmm. what we're seeing with him torturing the police officer. But um, my main memory of it is the little dance. Yes. It's like (laughs) arms up and down. Dad dance. Proper dad dance. Yeah. My dad actually used to do the dance. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, Alex, while I was picturing like a dad doing this dance, it was your dad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my dad used to do this dance before he would give us like uh, horse bites and stuff like that. (laughs) And you know, like Indian burns or whatever you call them. (laughs) He would literally do this dance beforehand. Because he loves this film. Got the trauma <laughs> that when you watch this and you just imagine your dad at the bottom of the stairs just coming up looking up towards Yeah, but it was like a proper flashback though. It was like like a repressed memory and I could just then see him doing like the little shoulder like movement. <laughs> great, great. Do you want to mention the Louise Redknapp version now if you must? No. Good. <laughs> D? Getting out of the way now. The music video is like her doing a sexy version of Re- Reservoir Dogs. There's five of them, like, that steal this guy. But what's weird is they name three of them, like, M- Ms. Blonde, Ms. Brunette, Mrs. Redknapp. <laughs> does it actually say that? It does. It, like, it does the same sort of, like, stop Mrs. and, like, the name appears at the bottom. But, like, there's five of them, and they only name three of them. And I think it's because the other two are black, and I don't think they wanted to call them Ms. Black. Probably not. It's the Power Rangers problem. Yeah. So uh, it comes across really weirdly that it's sort of like they introduce all the white people and then just ignore the two black people. But that makes it worse. Yeah, it does. It really does. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, you need to watch it, though. Like, listeners, if you haven't seen this, because you might not be aware of <laughs> Louise, Louise Redknapp or Eternal in general. Stop. <laughs> Go Google stop. Louise. Don't stop. Stop the podcast. Like, yeah, yeah, pause yeah, it. Yeah. Go watch the video. Be confused by what the hell is happening. Come back. That was weird, right? <laughs> you may continue, Ben. I'm so I've derailed us for too long. I'd here. be surprised if they came back. Anyway, those of you that didn't leave, obviously, we said this is a very iconic movie scene. A lot of people are familiar, probably because of the unison between the song and the scene. But yeah, the actual scene was quite heavily criticised at the time, probably because of the violence. And Quentin Tarantino, when he put the soundtrack together, said that he wanted all the songs in the film to be opposites, to be sort of like a counteract the violence in the film and that didn't stop people quite a lot of people apparently walked out at this scene especially in the US I've just never known people walk out of the scene they're doing the the little walk that Michael Madsen was doing (laughs) (laughs) they they weren't doing it out of a sort of yeah anger or protest of the film they were just god this is infectious they just wanted a bit more space to do it (laughs) just in the I can imagine them in the theatre aisles yeah I always feel like any film that has a buzz around it for people walking out it only works in favour of the film. I always think of Exorcist as probably being the greatest example. You know, this idea of people were, like, ambulances were having to be parked outside the cinema because it was that shocking. don't think it was, but that makes people want to go see it more. And I think that's kind of probably added, or at least emphasised the how influential or a turning point this film was. Michael Madsen apparently had a lot of problems doing the scene, which you never know because he looks like he's having so much fun. He really struggled because the policeman ad-libbed the line... I've got a little kid at home, which you really didn't like. Yeah, I remember hearing that line and thinking, God, this is getting, this is just getting yeah. worse and worse. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine Tarantino being like, yeah, more of that, more of that. Cry, bring in the kid, bring in the kid. <laughs> Make him watch. 
<laughs> but yeah, one thing I read, which was a, a lovely little fact, but shocked me, was that Wes Craven. Do you know who Wes Craven is? Yeah, like horror director, Hellraiser yeah. and stuff. Yeah, le- yeah, legendary horror director. Um, Halloween, The Thing, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> yeah, that classic staple of horror. He walked out for that reason. He thought it was too violent. It was too much. <laughs> it was too much for the guy who did the thing, uh, which I find mad. Apparently, Wes Craven said though afterwards that he wanted that to be a compliment to the film. <laughs> I hate it so much. Well done. I think it's it's, it's weird though, this because like it is quite violent when he chops off his ear, but you don't see them chop off his no. ear. And as well, even like when he flicks the knife at him. You see him flick the knife from behind and then it cuts to his face. It's not like yeah. you see him like digging no. into it or anything. I guess in a weird way, even though like it's a very unrealistic scene in that he's like dancing to steal his wheel whilst doing it. There's a sort of like implied realism behind it, isn't yes. there? That it's sort of it feels like the guy looks genuinely worried for his life. <laughs> like the guy playing the policeman. Mm-hmm. I think it's more the way he like throws the petrol on him that gets me. Because it's yeah. just like he really <laughs> drowns him in it. Yeah. And I don't know what they used to probably just water, I imagine. No, but probably it, no in Tarantino, probably petrol. <laughs> probably actual petrol. <laughs> Gotta be realistic. Things that he did to, you know, Uma Thurman for those like driving scenes. Oh yeah, well let's not get into that. <laughs> Isn't it one of those scenes that people will like claim they can actually see the ear being cut off? <laughs> like they feel like it, it was such a vi- visceral scene that it didn't actually happen on screen. Yeah, kind of like an it's all about yeah, like an implanted memory. Yeah, you yeah. definitely kind of see the wound afterwards, don't you? And you see him holding yeah. the ear and speaking oh, yeah. into the ear, which is a nice twist. <laughs> Comic twist. I think what I really love about the scene though is the part where he. It follows him outside to the car. That is, yeah, it's brilliant. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant, yeah. isn't it? It's like a one shot, isn't it? Yeah, and it really, it really makes it. It's timed so well as well because going off that that little part. So Michael Madsen, I think he's just cut the ear off and he walks outside to get something, get the petrol from the boot, isn't it? Yeah. And you can hear like kids playing, like you know, like and just sort of laughter and just general street noise. It's such a contrast alongside the song being a contrast. Just that, you know, like he's got, he's doing this just almost like in the middle of daylight and just doesn't care. And also when he walks in, because like Dee said, it's one cut. He walks in just at the point in the song where it's saying like, please. Like Jerry Rafferty's saying please over and over again. And it's like this begging. And it just works. You know, he's done it so well. And you can tell that attention to detail. Like the when you mentioned Alex. Quentin Tarantino doesn't do a lot of close-ups. He kind of likes to like sit back, especially in this film anyway, and just, you know, watch them kind of play it out. And I think that works in a lot of sense. But like one of the key close-ups is as soon as the song kind of kicks in with the chords and you go into that policeman's face and he kind of just looks back like, oh my God, what the fuck are you going to do? You know, that just like, what is this guy? I think it really emphasizes, especially because you can't see his mouth react. You just focus on the eyes because he's, he's got tape over his mouth. Yeah, he's got tape over his mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah. You really just focus on the eyes and it's like this. You know, it's that as the song kicks in, you know something's about to happen and it works really well. And like, I think when he cuts the ear off the and the camera moves just off center, the line in the song is um, lose control and I'm all over the place. And it's, you know, it kind of fits into, yeah, Michael Madsen is just completely out of control. I like when the camera pans and the graffiti says, watch your head. <laughs> oh, does it? I'd miss that. Yeah, it bit. Does, yeah. Yeah, very it good. Does. It is very good. That. It's just, you know, there's so much attention to detail gone into it. And like when you read the screenplays online, and they're quite interesting reads, I think, if anyone's actually interested in that thing, to go back and look at Tarantino's screenplays. But he mentions the songs in the screenplay. You know, he's clearly really thought about this beforehand. He's not like, you know, on the set kind of thinking, okay, what's going to work here? Or like, oh, we've got this. And then, you know, in post, which I think we're probably a lot more used to in covering songs for films in this podcast. 
Well, I think it's just great to have one that's actually a real live part of the film because I think so often it's just the song that's on the credits, isn't it? And I think we spoke about it with like the Oscars episode, but this one like lives within the film, like really lives mm-hmm. within the mm-hmm. film. And I think that that's what makes it so iconic almost. Yeah, it's basically this and Canine Crunches that we've done <laughs> where it's been in-universe. Yeah. Very similar songs. Very similar songs. <laughs> it's done for the purpose of the movie, isn't it? Storytelling device in a way. Yeah, definitely. Can you think of any other director that does it like Tarantino does in the sense of music? Edgar Wright? Yeah, he's the only one I can think of. I guess Baby Driver's probably a very good example. Um, and, and to be fair, they're really good friends. I think like the director's commentary on Shaun of the Dead is him and Tarantino just talking about it. <laughs> it's quite. It's really good to listen. I think it's, it's either Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. In fact, I think, I think it's it might Hot, be Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. I think yeah. it's Hot Fuzz. Yeah, I think I've heard it. It's yeah, yeah. and it's just like they're, they're just talking about it. They're obviously from the same school of you know. We just really love film. They didn't go to film school. They just <laughs> learned about films from watching it. My whole life was a film school. Yeah, I can imagine him saying that. To be honest, a few more F's in it probably. Yeah. D, you kind of picked on it a bit when you were talking about the song, but can you enjoy these things separately? Do you separate them in your mind? Or when you think, oh, hear this song, comes on the radio, do you think of this scene? Well, Ben, I don't have to separate this version of the song from the film because there's a much better version of the song by Louise Redknapp. It's not. It's not. (laughs) It's not better. No, it's not. No, it's not. (laughs) It's definitely not. Did Louise Redknapp have a career before this? I'm going down this avenue of talking about Louise. She Redknapp. was in Eternal. She was in the band Eternal, yeah. What is, what's, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> like a British girl group from the mid-90s to late 90s. I think it, it was, this was, it was the launch of a solo career, this though, wasn't it? The song, I think. <laughs> the launch. Must have been around then. Launch, I mean, you've got to kind of get, really get off the ear, off the ground in order to launch. Alex, can you enjoy them separately without talking about Louise Redknapp? I think, like, if I hear this song, the, the Steelers wheel version... <laughs> I, I automatically think of the film, I mean, even like if it were regardless of saying, because I just the two things are just too linked in my mind. I think I can't disconnect the song, but I do like the song. I think the song is very like, uh, it's very, uh, I was going to say sing-alongable. <laughs> is that a term? You heard it's it here first. <laughs> you heard it here first, guys. It's a real sing-alongable tune. Yep, there we go. That's the kind of critiques we give on this podcast. Sing-alongable. If you hear it on the radio, I think you're always like, yeah, this is uh, this is fun to listen to. Sing a little, and you've also got the trauma, obviously. Yeah, which adds to it, doesn't it? Adds extra depth <laughs> to the to the listening trauma experience. Trauma adds depth. Yeah, there you go. Also heard it here, probably first. <laughs> you guys, maybe you may may think this is stupid, but when I was rewatching it, the fight we haven't spoken really about the final scene, the the everyone pointing guns at each other, which is like mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. another iconic scene. I was watching it, thinking, who shoots nice guy Eddie? <laughs> I don't know if you guys have like, picked on this one before. So I've watched so many videos oh, yeah. to pick up on who shoots Nice Guy Eddie. And, and there's loads of people who have deconstructed the scene in slow-mo. <laughs> because if, to, to, if for people who haven't seen or don't remember, Joe, who is this old mob boss, is pointing a gun at Mr. Orange, who's laid on the floor dying. As in the guy from The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. White, Harvey Cartel, is pointing a gun at Joe, saying, I will shoot you if you shoot him. Then Nice Guy Eddie is pointing a gun at Mr. White saying, if you shoot Joe, I will shoot you, <laughs> right? You put that gun from me for my dad! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds like he's on EastEnders. But, but nobody's pointing a gun at Nice Guy Eddie. So I was like, but, but he falls down, obviously, and dies. Oh, well, we're assume, we assume he dies. So I've watched loads of people deconstructing slow-mo. Who, what actually happens is, and it, and it actually plays out this way in the shooting, although Nice Guy Eddie reacts to the shot before he's actually hit, if you watch it in slow-mo. But... Joe shoots Mr. Orange. <laughs> Mr. White shoots Joe. 
Nice Gady shoots Mr. White, but as he's doing it, Mr. White turns his gun sideways and shoots Nice Gady. What a guy. Double kill. Yeah, but like, <laughs> but you actually, if you watch it, it actually does do it as well. Because obviously it happens so quickly in the actual film, you don't even really see what's happened. Everyone just falls over, don't they? But I was, it just really bothered me afterwards because like, how did he get shot? Because I was thinking, well, did Mr. Orange shoot him? But he didn't have any bullets left in his gun. Because that's another point in this film. When someone shoots somebody with a gun, they really shoot them. They shoot them. <laughs> they shoot every bullet that's in that oh, yeah. gun yeah. at that person, yeah. <laughs> regardless of whether it's necessary or not. Um, so yeah, so Mr. Orange didn't have any bullets left, did he? Because he shoots Mr. Blonde like fifty times. I think. I think in general, in Tarantino movies, it's not necessary. <laughs> And to be fair, D, when D mentioned the ending of Django, that's probably the they're just, they're just exploding. In fact, I'm pretty sure does Tarantino just explode because he's in that film, isn't he? I'm pretty sure he just explodes. Okay, top five guys. I've been meaning to do this one for a while because it could work at the end of any of our podcasts. But I felt in discussing how good Tarantino's soundtracks are, especially his compilation soundtracks. I've decided to look at, sales-wise, what are the best-selling movie soundtracks of all time. So when we're talking soundtracks, we're not talking scores. Yeah. Songs. Okay. In films. Right. Um, Sound of Music. Nope. Uh, Saturday Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever is second. Well done. Grease? Nope. Not Grease. The musicals count in this? Yeah, yeah, I assume. I'm surprised Sound of Music isn't in there. I, uh, yeah, I'd say musicals do count in this. Oh, wait, hang on. Reservoir Dogs. No, no, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Good job. For the first uh, time ever, it's not in the top five. Ooh. God, I, I thought I'd nailed three straight out of the bag there and only one of them was right. I'll just say Guardians of the Galaxy. No, no. I think that you, you probably have to go slightly older just because of, like, time. Are there any, like, Disney ones? Disney soundtracks? In the top ten, yes, but not in the top five. Not in the top five. Um, I feel like Barbra Streisand film, maybe. A Star is Born. Is there any Barbara Streisand films in this list? Not in the top five, no. Oh, okay. Um, Something like Sixteen Candles or The Breakfast Club. No. Bollocks. Okay, I'll give you a clue for the... No. I'll give you a clue for number one. Say on on shows like X Factor, American Idol, someone says, I'm performing this song, and people go, big song. The Bodyguard. Bodyguard. (laughs) 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 Number two was Saturday Night Fever. Purple Rain. Purple Rain, Alex. Very oh, good. good shout. Very good. Three. Quadrophenia. No. Oh, not bad shout, though. The other two um, are compilation pieces, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Like, comp- so they're not they're not like original. One's soundtracks. from 1994 and one's from 1987. 1994? Mm-hmm. Independence Day. What song's in Independence Day? Does it matter? I'd say number f- number four is a, it's an Oscar winning film. Uh, Under a Siege. Very good. <laughs> 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 a very good film. Is this the one that's in the nineties? Yeah, I'm. I honestly trying to think of what's what songs are in this film. That's the thing I've so hard. I'm pretty sure. What's the? There's a joke that in every Vietnam-based film, a certain song gets played. Is it Platoon? No, but do you know the song I'm meaning? Um, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. Uh, what do you call the it? Red, white, uh, and blue. Song. Red, white, and blue one. What's it called? <laughs> it ain't me. Uh, Fortunate Son, that's it. And is that song in this film that you're talking I about? I think so, yes. Oh, is it Forrest Gump? It's Forrest Gump, well done. Yeah, okay. And the fifth one is what you would consider, I guess, you'd stereotype as a chick flick. From the 80s. 87, yes. Mannequin. No, no, good guess. <laughs> it's a good guess. I was going to say, say anything, but it's not going to be like that kind of thing. When you think of, like, I guess, what you, you know, if you did like these lists of chick flicks and these kind of things. I'm thinking like Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, but I felt they're 90s. <laughs> yeah, also. Is it a Meg no. Ryan film? It's not a Meg Ryan film. 
You're going to go earlier than that. When you say what's the like the biggest biggest is it, chick flick? Is it Beaches? It's not Beaches. <laughs> what's the biggest chick flick? Mm. God. Pretty Woman. No. Maybe I'm, go- maybe I'm going to. Another good shout there. It involves music a lot in the plot. Or maybe something that you would do to music. Sing. The producers. Sing. <laughs> Wally. I honestly don't. Who's it? Could you give us a clue who's in the film? That would give it away. Some, the ma- the oh. main lead is, is unfortunately passed away. Too young. The woman, I have no idea who she is. Uh, there's a thing that often you might get at a lot oh, of... Oh, it's Dirty songs. Dancing. It's I don't dirty know how I dancing. get this straight away. Of course it's Dirty Dancing. That's the most obvious yeah, sure. one on the list. <laughs> it was Sometimes it does get like that, though, when you think. Because you, yeah. you, you're not I guess on the side of these, Ben. Yeah, well, maybe, so maybe for once you do the work. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's your thing. It's your I mean, thing, then. I don't, I don't want it. Like, you're saying as if there's this thing of, like, you know, I should be proud of it. You should be proud of it. You do a good job. You did a good job. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. That's it's my it's my favourite part of the podcast. Yeah, well, I'm glad I can like lighten up your week, Alex. It's even my favourite part when I listen back because I've forgotten what the answers are. Because <laughs> you've forgotten about all your stupid <laughs> responses. Now it's time for the ultimate question of movie or song. Reservoir Dogs are stuck in the middle with you, not the Louise version. Alex, you want to go first? I think you coined the phrase maybe D in uh, the Swiss Army Man that scene. That song from that scene from that film. <laughs> oh, and yeah, I would choose yeah. the scene over both because I think that full scene from beginning to end, where he starts the play, plays the song on the radio a bit, and then gets shot, is like the best part of the of what I like about the film. It's everything that I, that I love about it. Um, so th- technically, that would be my answer, but I think actually, film is the answer. I feel like the song works perfectly in this scene, but do I think another song could work as good? Possibly. I think it's it's obviously difficult to tell, but I feel mm. like actually you could put another song in there that worked in the same way that was quite uh, anachronistic, I suppose is the term. It might have worked still, and we might have still been saying it's an iconic scene because it's actually the it's what happens in it, maybe rather than the song. So I would say film, I think. Okay, what about you, Ben? That's a really good point. I think Alex raised there. Like, if something, if another song went in this scene, would it still be as good? Possibly. I think though we broke it down quite a lot. Just how, even like in the lyrics, I think it, it works really well. Not just the sort of the comparative between the sort of the melodic song and the intense violence that's going on. Just the, I think the lyrics work really well. I, I, I think the film is incredibly influential and important as much as he stole a lot of it, <laughs> including that scene where they're all pointing guns at each other. Which I think is from um, it's from a Hong Kong film. I forget what it's called, but yeah, he steals everything. Um, but I still love it. Yeah, I think I'm going to go film as well. I was sort of maybe leaning towards the song from the, this episode, but I think I'm going to stick with the film. Is that three nil? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay, so that brings it into another episode of that song from that movie. Let us know on Twitter which one you think is better, the song or the movie, and you can do that on Twitter. Alex, what is our Twitter handle? Um, it's TSFTMPod. And you can help the podcast in many ways. For example, you can share this on a random subreddit. Ben, watch Louise Redknapp subreddit. <laughs> Didn't even wait for me to finish the sentence. You can help us by buying merch, signing up for our Patreon, by leaving us a review. There's links on our social media to all of this stuff on the aforementioned TSFTMPod on Twitter. So all that's left now is to do some goodbyes. So it's goodbye from Alex. It's a metaphor for big dicks. <laughs> and that's us getting an explicit notice on this episode 
<laughs> I didn't even say goodbye myself, so goodbye from me and goodbye from Ben. You shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologise. <laughs> so, <laughs> goodbye everybody. Bye. Remember to tip. Yeah. <laughs>